I'd like to add an additional word of statement of appreciation to this congregation for the support during that personal evangelism seminar. Two days that were so thrilling, two days that were so encouraging, two days that were so magnificent in pointing us to a realization of the power of the gospel of Christ and what you and I can do to help in a personal way to teach the gospel to others. In fact, you're probably aware that uh, five sessions, two on Friday night and three on Saturday morning, and as those were completed, Brother Rob Whitaker was with us and he shared with us his practical experience and the success he has known as he has used that very thing he taught us to teach the gospel to so very many. I think as I mentioned at one point, based on what he shared with me, over 500 conversions to the gospel this year alone using that system he just shared with us over the last two days. As you keep all that in mind, this lesson today will in fact follow on the heels of that by asking us to consider motivation for evangelism. We here at the Pippin Church wish to be what God would have us to be. And as you just noted in that text of Mark 16, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. The Lord did place upon us the obligation and a lovely one at that to teach the gospel to others. I suppose, and I certainly include myself in that, listening to what Brother Rob shared, there's been some things I haven't been doing rightly, or at least not in the best way possible. And I know many others have shared those kind of sentiments yourself, in which he gave us those actual matters that, have been, that are so helpful. Our elders take very seriously making use of that which has just been shared. And over the next few days and the next few weeks, we will begin to hear plans and things that we're going to begin doing to help us share the gospel using those very things that Brother Rob shared with us. That's partly the reason for this lesson as you and I think about this motivation today. As you do that, this opening slide will be one that in a very general way points us to this observation. Equipping of the saints. In Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 to 16, Paul spoke about the fact that the saints, that's you and I as Christians, are those who can and should be equipped, and we are, we are in that position as a result of the gospel. But our desire to implement and use it are things that we're now going to strive to put into practice, things we're going to strive to make a reality. There may be individuals in your life, family members, co-workers, acquaintances, friends, neighbors, others, and you're aware that they're fine people, no doubt about that, but they're lost. They've never obeyed the gospel. This series we just enjoyed from Rob Whitaker, I'm sure cemented in all of us a remembrance, a realization that above all things else, we need to make sure to see them the way God sees them. And He sent His Son to die for them. And at least at this point, they've never accepted it. To this point, they have basically turned their back upon it. That's tragic, it's catastrophic, and it's sad. And yet we've just learned some things that we can do in this lesson today. I hope we'll put in us a renewed zeal and motivation, reminding us as to why our elders invited Rob to be with us the last two days. Why did we, why did we do that? We did it for these reasons. As you and I close that slide then, it's safe to say that arguably one of the main reasons why 
something that doesn't get done in your life or mine is because we don't sense the motivation for it. Look at this opening slide with me, would you? You'll notice beginning at the top, when you think about any task that's in your life or mine, anything related to your home life, your job life, otherwise, if there's some element or matter of that that isn't being done, you can almost always trace it back to a failure to appreciate the motivation for it. That's true in our jobs. It's true in schools. That child, that student in my physics class that does so poorly, in almost all cases, it's because he just didn't study. He didn't sense the motivation in what might happen. And so when he makes an F or a D, it isn't my fault. Now, I take seriously, as any teacher does, I'm sure, the presenting of that material, but ultimately that student has to appreciate and be motivated to study and apply it. And so it is with Christianity. Today, look at how that slide develops. In 1 Peter 1, verse number 21, you and I are told clearly that Jesus Christ is our example. Every one of us would be quick to say the Lord was perfect. In every walk and every avenue of His life, He made no mistakes. His motivation was always correct and right. His motivation was always properly presented. And so this morning, why don't you and I ask, what was the Lord's motivation when it came to presenting the gospel? Teaching others and evangelizing, what were His motivations? Whatever they were, they should also be ours. Because again, He made no mistakes, no errors, no issues of any kind when it came to that subject or any other. And so it is, you'll notice that you and I are told, aren't we? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Borrowing the language of Philippians 2.5. Aren't we taught in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you the hope of glory. Galatians 4.19 echoes this sentiment. I travail until Christ be formed in you. Paul then had a desire for the Galatians, for the Philippians, for the Colossians, all of them to appreciate the emanation of and the presentation of that beautiful mind of Christ. You and I today should appreciate that's still the will of God. He wants the mind of Christ to be in the Pippin Church, to be in every one of us. And so how was the Lord motivated when it came to evangelism? As you and I close that slide, it's a prompting question, isn't it? It's one that should in fact rest upon you and me, and I ask it like this. What motivated Jesus when it came to evangelism? On many occasions, we'll see an example in Paul. What motivated Paul in the case of evangelism? Answer number one. Isn't it true we could phrase it like this? A compassion for the lost. As you'll notice on that slide, a compassion for the lost. There's an obvious observation and a keen category. There are those who are lost, separate and apart from and distinguished from those who are saved. Jesus had a very strong compassion for them, didn't He? Look, for instance, at this text in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and following. 
the scene is such an overwhelming one. Jesus, our Savior, on that occasion, the text says He had gone about a number of villages and cities. He had healed their sick and He had aided those who had physical ailments. But that isn't all it says. In addition to doing those things, the next verse goes on to say, He scanned and looked upon them and told His apostles, The fields are white for harvest, but the laborers are few. And the Lord said, It's like sheep with no shepherd. Aren't you amazed by that? The Lord had the power to heal every ailment men had, but that wasn't His chief concern. His chief concern was their soul salvation. And he looked on the harvest and said, Many, many, many are needed for the laborers, but the laborers unfortunately are few. It is in that very context, aren't you impressed? I know that there's a division between Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 10, but the Holy Spirit didn't make that division. Man did. In the next chapter, the first thing the Lord did, He commissioned what we call the limited commission. And He sent them out two by two. And He did so and said, You go and you teach and you share the good news of Me. Keeping all of that in mind, look at where that leads us. Doesn't it highlight the very nature of the question? What does it mean to be lost? That is such a touching thing, isn't it? You and I, I suppose, often, unfortunately, do not look upon that the way that we should. That neighbor that lives next to you or me, or maybe even someone sitting in one of these pews this morning, they're currently lost. And yet, we see them as a neighbor, we see them as a family member, we see them as a friend, we often enjoy conversation with them. And the fact is, they're lost. They're currently headed for hell. When the day of judgment comes, if things don't change, they're lost. That little four-letter word, as powerful as it is, it is a little word that certainly carries such weight. Have you ever known or perhaps been in a situation yourself in life when you were lost somehow? I remember well back in those days before there was maps on our phones and things like that, that maybe you had to travel to a distant place and all you had was a paper map to follow. And it's easy if you get to a place where the map, given that the print is so small, it looked different than what you now see. Here's a one-way street and I have to go that way, but it seems to take me away from where I want to go. And it was easy to get turned around. It was easy to become lost. And maybe at the wrong time of day, it could become scary. Here I am at a part of town. Obviously, that is very, very unsafe. Especially for a stranger. Especially for someone who obviously doesn't live here. Gangs and vandals and others could wreak havoc with me and my safety and that of my family. It could be scary. Think about being eternally lost. Here one arrives at the day of judgment. This person has walked on the Lord's footstool. He's breathed his air. He's drunk his water. He's enjoyed or she a life whereby so many blessings physically have been appreciated. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ is standing there beside the Father and tears streaming down the Son's face. Why didn't you obey the gospel? You had opportunities to do it and I died for you. And why did you not do it? 
depart from me, I never knew you. Can you imagine the horror of hearing that? Think about it. I understand we're so often in a position, we love second chances. But there will be no second chance then. No second chance. No reduction of the, of the penalty. No exemption from the subject. You're lost. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. Jesus had a compassion for the lost. Look near the bottom of that slide. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the next verse develops it like this. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That's why the Master came. He didn't primarily come to heal disease and illness. He could do it, and He frequently did. But His greater mission was the salvation of souls. He came and gave His life that that might be a reality. Today, aren't you and I blessed to appreciate it? As, you, as we close that slide, isn't it true Paul felt it too? What a keen compassion he had for those who were not right with God. I would call to your attention that text in 1 Corinthians 9, 16. In the midst of that presentation to the church in Corinth, Paul said, Woe is it to me if I preach not the gospel. He felt a critical integrity, a critical obligation on his part. In Romans 1, verses 14 to 16, he said, I'm debtor to preach it. I'm ready to preach it. I'm not ashamed to preach it. And so it is, the gospel was the only message that Paul desired to share. He had a compassion. No wonder in the book of Acts we find missionary journeys where he would head to different places and towns, desirous of preaching the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. And so the question at the bottom, do you and I have a compassion for the lost? Do you and I have a strong consideration about their spiritual well-being? May we try to develop it, understanding that just as Jesus had it and so too did Paul, we are encouraged to be the same way. That text that was read earlier today in our hearing in Mark 16, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Oh, how strongly you and I are admonished, encouraged that as faithful followers of His... We too can be those messengers of the gospel. Reason number two, not only was the Lord motivated by compassion for the lost, let's look at another passage. This time, might we give thought to the purpose as to why Jesus was here. And before we're finished with this topic, we'll ask, does that purpose apply to us as well? I suppose it would be fair to say that here the matter is this, why are you and I here upon earth? Why are we here? As easily as it is to say that philosophers and others who are in that line of consideration, they have wrestled for millennia with what's the purpose of life? Why are men and women here? What are we doing? There have been many supposed answers. Some say it's scientific development, the improvement of society. That's not it. 
Others say it is the ongoing consideration of sending forth one's name and one's legacy. That's not it either. There are others who say it is the overall care intending to planet Earth. That's not it either. That's three. You could continue the list many more times. Our only interest is what does the Bible say? What about the purpose we see in texts like John 4 verse 34 and later in John 6 verse 38? Jesus on both those occasions said things like this, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. The second one, in that verse 38 of John 6, I came down not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. The Lord's mission, His objective was to carry out the will of the Heavenly Father. With those things in mind, look at where it leads us next. That led Him in Luke 19.10 to say that I have come to seek and to save the lost. That's why He came here. The Lord's life of some 33 years of the flesh, and it surely was met with a lot of obstacle and a lot of resistance. And through it all, He kept in mind the appreciation of why He was here, the mission to seek and to save the lost. With those things in mind, note this application. He could then easily and rather dramatically say in John 19.30, It is finished. I have done the work you sent me to do. And that's the very statement he made in John 17, verses 1 to 3. That's a thrilling consideration. When you and I reach the end of our days, whenever that may come, will you and I also be able to say, I have done what the Father gave me to do? And doesn't that highlight that our purpose is to do the will of God? Our purpose is to do the will of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew 6, 33. As we then appreciate that in your life and mine, the fulfillment of the will and the power of God is our sole objective. The other things we do, be it our jobs, our obligations as parents, as husbands, as wives, those fit beneath the umbrella of doing the will of God. Notice then this application. What is your purpose and what is mine in life? May I say, be honest. I know in the confines of a church building, it's easy to say, my objective is to serve with all my heart the God of heaven. Does your life tomorrow evidence that that's true? Does my life Tuesday evidence that that's true? When others see you or me, can they affirm... I would say that what he says is then consistent with the way he lives. You and I have got to be honest. This book, as we're told in James 1.25, is the perfect law of liberty. When you hold it up like a mirror, what does it say about your life and mine? Is our purpose what we claim it to be? Or are we more hypocritical than we might wish to think? Notice, for instance, Paul's appreciation of this point. In Philippians 3, verses 13 and following, Not that I've already apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the prize of the calling of, high, of, of God in Christ Jesus. Paul felt the purpose, didn't he? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, he 
exemplified it like this. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's a fantastic consideration, isn't it? Let's close it with this question. What Paul affirmed and what Jesus exemplified is also commanded to be true of you and me. What is my purpose and yours? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Everything is summed up in this. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. That's it. If we sojourn through life and miss that, we have failed. Doesn't matter what else we may have accomplished. Doesn't matter what else could be said about us by the person preaching our funeral. If that cannot be said, we were a failure. But on the other hand, if that's true, then no matter what else is the case, we were successful. We lived and died in Christ. And we influenced others to do the same. That'll make us successful. Are you successful? Am I? It's a sobering question, isn't it? And of course it touches the whole matter of our study of evangelism, doesn't it? What about point number three? What else might be said that motivated Jesus? Not only His purpose and not only His compassion for the lost. What about His love for the Father? While Jesus was here in the flesh, we understand that He was God in the flesh. Philippians 2, verses 5 and following describe that. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He is God. And yet, while here in the flesh, he directed all attention in such an appropriate way to the Heavenly Father. And what a motivating factor it was. Let's begin that development like this. In John 15, 9, Jesus said that He knew the Father. And He told those apostles on that occasion that just as surely as they had seen Him, they'd seen the Father. In fact, He told Philip that very matter, didn't He? With that in mind, it led us to note this. That drove Jesus to share that message of the gospel with others because He wanted them to know the Father like He did. Isn't that amazing? He wanted them to know God the Father in the remarkable, powerful, direct way that He knew God the Father. That too ought to motivate you and me. You and I have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. We have been washed clean from our sins and we love the Father and we want others to know that same love and life that we do. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, that led Jesus on many occasions to say things like this, If you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. You're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you, John 15, 14. Later in that same chapter in John 15, 21, You're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Are you and I then a friend of Christ in the sense that we too want to share the wonderful Heavenly Father with those about us? That kind of friendship and that kind of motivation led to this statement in John 16, 27. If you love the Father, then you'll manifest that love as you not only live accordingly, but share those things by way of speech and voice and instruction to those with whom you have contact. 
That's the way the Lord felt. That's why He said that. Question then, do you and I love the Father? This is another one of those occasions. It's easy to say yes. It's tempting to say yes almost automatically. For from the time we were little, we learned to sing songs, Oh, how I love Jesus. And that song is so meaningful. And yet all of us must ever realize that that love shows itself. It manifests itself. It evidences itself. For 1 John 5, 3 says, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. Regardless what I say, if I don't keep His commandments, I don't love Him. It's just that simple. It doesn't matter what I say. If my life is not an exemplification of keeping His commandments, then I do not love Him. Do you and I love God? Do we love the Father? Are we willing then to do what He tells me, the way He tells me, for the reason He tells me? That's what obedience is. That's the biblical definition of it. So when it comes to evangelism, let's make application like this. Paul understood this keenly. In Romans 5 verse 5, he highlighted that as the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Listen to that. That love is shed abroad. Others are aware of it. They, in fact, are able to witness it. Is that true of your life and mine? Or the only ones who know we love God are sitting in the confines of this building? What about tomorrow, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? What about even this afternoon? All those are great questions, aren't they? It's a wonderful thing to notice that this motivating factor, of course, is applied directly to us. In Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, Jesus Himself speaking to those who were His disciples and His followers, He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. For this is the greatest and first commandment. We aren't left then to wonder in our love for God, our compassion for the lost, our desire then to exemplify these things we've studied. We notice what a motivating thing it is for evangelism. What about number four? What's another consideration? The terror of the Lord. I thought it reasonable to include that one, especially in light of Paul's example, but certainly Jesus teaches it to us as well. This terror of the Lord. Just as surely as it's true that our God is an amazing God of mercy and that He withholds punishment, giving opportunities, and His long-suffering character is well appreciated, according to 2 Peter 3, verse 15, it's also fair to say that Jesus spoke on many occasions about the terror of the Heavenly Father. In Matthew 10, verse 28, for example, didn't Jesus say, in that very context where even the very hairs of your head are numbered, He said, Fear Him, which can kill both body and soul in hell. He said, Don't fear men. Men can't do anything about eternity, but God can. And thus He insisted that all of us be wise and we recognize the power of God and what His terror will lead Him to do. It is with that in mind, Mark 9, verses 43 to 48, describe in a rather extended passage an incredible truth. Jesus, as He insisted and taught about the nature of obedience, 
he taught about a place where the worm doesn't die, where the fire is never quenched. That's frightening. I freely confess all of us would agree we don't, we don't want to be there. But the fact is, there are many that are going to end up there. May you and I ensure by fidelity to the Lord that we're not one of them. For He said Himself in those passages, there are many who are deceived. They, in fact, with their mouth say one thing but live in a different way. The terror of the Lord is real. I know very well that our current world is such that folks like to portray God as this amazing, older, kind of white-haired man who is just going to throw his arms wide open wide on the day of judgment, and he's really going to basically forgive every wrong that everybody has done except the most abject murderers and killers. But friend, that just isn't pictured in the Bible that way. God is not like that. He is a God not only of love but of justice. And we read verses like these. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 2 Corinthians 5.11 That's why we're going to begin these evangelism ideas and try to be more direct about it. Because there are people you and I know who are lost. There are people living close by who are lost. And we care about them. And we want them to be saved. And we want them to know the blessing of forgiveness we have known. And we know the terror of the Lord is real. We know that there's coming a day of judgment when every single individual is going to stand before the God of heaven in judgment. Matthew 25, 32 says, All nations will be there. Nobody will be exempt. And everyone's going to give answer for the deeds done in the body. And Paul, as he made description of this terror, he phrased it like this, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished, listen to Him, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction, not temporary, not lasting a thousand years, unending, unceasing, permanent destruction. It's a frightening spectacle. And that motivates us because we want people not to suffer that way. Let's close that particular point then by noting briefly how often the Bible brings that thought before us. Before we're done with our study of Revelation on Wednesdays, and let me encourage you, be with us on Wednesday. It is the will of God that you assemble with the saints. Acts 5.42, Hebrews 10.25, and many others. Make it a regular point. Plan to be with us Wednesday, Sunday nights. As we do that, we'll encourage one another. We'll assist one another to be right with God. And we'll try to always lift high the banner of God's truth. But among that book of Revelation, we find several pictures given of what's going to happen when we arrive at chapters 19 and 20, we'll find, John, what do you see right in the book? I see a lake burning with fire and brimstone, and I see people cast there. It's not just the dragon. It's not just the beast. People are cast there. Are you going to be one of them? Be honest. Every one of us are given a lifetime to make sure that things are right. May we not be unwise. That brings us to point five.
The joy of the Lord motivated our Lord. This terror is such a frightening spectacle, but it's always important to keep it in, in, in our heart. But Jesus was also motivated by joy. I've always found that such an interesting thing in Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to this passage. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. What? The joy of the cross? What joy was in the scourging? What joy was in the crucifixion when they drove nails into His hands and feet? Where was the joy? The joy was what you and I know today. The Lord knew by virtue of what He was doing that people could be saved from their sins and live forever in heaven. And that motivated Him. Does it motivate you and me? Are we motivated like that as well? I understand that we aren't crucified like He was. And I understand that we're not scourged like He was. But does the joy of salvation motivate us to share the message with those that we know? May it motivate us. Look at some of these verses briefly. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 19, Paul said it motivated him. Why did he preach to the Thessalonians? He said, I'm looking forward, if I may paraphrase, to the day of judgment where you can appear sinless and you Thessalonians can be declared forever saved. Does that motivate us? It sure did Paul. We look forward to the thought then on that day of judgment when not only we but a whole host of others due to our example of life and our evangelistic fervor have helped others to become members of the body of Christ. That joy motivated Christ, and didn't it also motivate Paul? Look at those several examples in the book of Revelation. In fact, this coming Wednesday evening, or rather whenever our next study takes us up, we will find ourselves in Revelation 7, and on that occasion we'll be reminded about really some of the matters we're discussing this morning. As this lesson draws near its conclusion, it is a time of honest inquiry and a time of self-reflection. These are five reasons why Jesus was motivated to evangelize. It's five reasons that should motivate the Pippin congregation. It's five reasons that should motivate each of us. As I summarize it like this, let me again list them so that we can keep the thought of them ever in the forefront of our heart. To evangelize is just simply meaning a presentation of the gospel of Christ. We do that from the pulpit here. We do it by sending missionaries around the world. But we're also encouraged in 2 Timothy 2.2 to do it individually. To do it by the way that each of us are living. How are you and I doing at this? Our congregation, it's our desire under the leadership of our elders to move and motivate us in a reason to be more evangelistic, to appreciate these attributes and to employ them, to manifest them, to evidence them. And you'll notice what motivates all of us. First, a compassion for the lost. A realization that our purpose is to do the will of our Heavenly Father. Thirdly, to highlight the love of God as it's manifested in that which we do. Fourthly, to ever keep in mind the terror of the Lord. And finally,
to understand that great joy that shall be appreciated on that day of judgment when souls are recognized and hear statements like this, Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. To borrow the wording of Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23. This very morning, I hope we've each been motivated to consider evangelism in our individual lives. And in the coming days and weeks as our elders lead us to make more statements of application about this, we're going to find that our motivation will never depart from these things we've learned today. But right now, it's also a good time to ask this. If you're not right with God at this moment, if sin is the most notable part of your life, you realize God doesn't want it that way. Jesus died that it be not that way. But the decision is left to you and to me. If all isn't well with your soul, may I ask, why are you living like this? Do you love the world this much? Are you willing to go to hell for it? Are you willing to be forever separated from God? All those things that we so much dislike about this world, the ugliness, the shame, the sin, the disgrace, the foolish choices that people make, do you want to go to hell and be with those people for all eternity? Is that what you want? The choice is yours, you know. Jesus died that you could be saved, but He won't force you. He won't make you. He won't drag you down this aisle. And it's not that it has to be at this hour. Any time, day or night, call one of our elders. If you want to obey the gospel, call myself. But this is a convenient time, and a host of people are more than delighted to celebrate with you. Jesus died that this plan of salvation would be in place. You've got to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ. John 8, 24 demands it. You must repent of those sins in your life. Turn aside from them with the intent to do them no more. That's commanded too in Luke 13, 5. Confess the great name of Jesus as the one and only Messiah from God. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And then submissively be immersed in water. You're, putting the old, you're burying that old man of sin. He's dead now. From that watery grave will come a new creature in Christ. And you'll be able to, with all the fervor and enthusiasm, to walk hand in hand with God. Today, if we could assist you in becoming a New Testament Christian, it's by the power of the Christ, we'd be delighted to help. May I say, though, that if you have become a child of God, and you've known the blessings that went with it, but you have perhaps lost that fervor, that zeal, you've left your first love. No longer is your life what it ought to be. You know it. Christ knows it. Many others perhaps know it too. Then why don't you change? After all, Christ has given you the opportunity to do it. And there's no better day than today. The fifth day of November, 2017. The day of your rebirth in many ways. A, a reactivation of your life for Christ. We'd be delighted to pray to God for you. You've got to believe now in Christ and His power to forgive you. And you've got to repent of the sins. That's true. But we'll pray to God for you. If today we could be of help to you, why, why delay? Even another moment, why not come now while together we stand and sing?